The time has come. The days are fulfilled. The new world, world order is here. Stop what you're doing. Turn around. Get on board. Sign up. The old order of things is passing away. Follow me. Good morning. <laughs> if you met me down at the North Epping shops announcing that message, what would you think? I thought about giving it a try on Friday afternoon. <laughs> just after school finished. I knew my, ki- my kids wouldn't stand for that. North Epping is a small town. If you met me earnestly announcing that message, would you take me seriously? Would you believe the news? Would you sign up? It's common to think of Jesus as a guy who came to share some great spiritual principles, some nice wisdom for the living of life, some top tips on how to be your best self. People listen to his Sermon on the Mount and think, yeah, that's pretty good. I could get on board with that. But the full Jesus, the three-dimensional Jesus, the Jesus who's not just made up from cherry-picked sound bites, the full Jesus was much more than a guy with a few ideas to share. The Jesus we meet in the pages of the Bible was a guy who made an outrageous identity claim. The claim he made is so big that if he's wrong, he's a complete crackpot and we should ignore everything else he says. But if he's speaking the truth, it really does justify a radical response. Our Bible reading today was really quite a long chunk from the earliest biography of Jesus, the book of Mark in the New Testament. And in that long passage today, we didn't hear a single bit of moral teaching from Jesus. No wise advice no sublime philosophy, no 10 top tips for spiritual well-being. What we saw today in episode after episode was Jesus making an outrageous claim about himself. His claim was that a change of government is about to occur, that God is about to take charge of his world. And Jesus claimed, God has installed me as ruler over everything. If I was saying that, you would rightly treat me as a lunatic. Unless I could show you some really convincing evidence. If it's just words, you'll pass on by, shake your head. But if somehow I could walk the talk, maybe you'd think twice. And in today's passage in the Bible, we see Jesus doing just that, walking the talk. We see him demonstrating his royal authority, and we see him illustrating the kind of kingdom that he's going to rule over. Let's have a quick look through. We'll start at verse 21. We'll move quickly. Scene one, we're in the town of Capernaum. We're on the town of Capernaum, we're on the shore of Lake Galilee. It's the Sabbath and everyone's gathered together in a synagogue. 
And Jesus, who's developed a bit of a reputation as a travelling rabbi, he's invited to say a few words. He gets up to teach in the synagogue and we're told that everyone who heard his teaching was amazed. Amazed by what? Not because his teaching was so smooth and easy to listen to. Not because it was so helpful and relevant to life. They were amazed because he taught with authority. Normal synagogue time, synagogue sermons at that time, they were full of quotes and footnotes, like a good university essay or a Wikipedia article. They quoted their sources. They based themselves on the authority of an established tradition. But Jesus didn't rely on any of that. As Jesus taught, there was simply a gravity in his words that nobody could deny. He taught with authority. Suddenly there's a commotion in the synagogue. A heckler, a deeply disturbed person has made their way in. Someone possessed by an evil spirit. I've never seen this kind of thing. I suspect you haven't either. But the fact that most humans through history and most people today outside the Western world see evil spirits as a real and serious problem, that fact and some basic cultural humility makes me take this event seriously. The evil spirit that has invaded this man is alarmed by Jesus' presence. It speaks up on behalf of all the powers of evil. Verse 24 Have you come to destroy us? The powers of evil feel threatened by Jesus. Jesus has a technique for healing this kind of spiritual affliction. It's a very advanced and complex technique. He calls out, be quiet, come out of him. Some of you here are dog owners. You might have had this kind of experience where you can just use a certain tone of voice And perfect obedience ensues. Have you had that with your dog? I have no dog. I have three children. (laughs) This kind of scenario is completely unknown to me. But Jesus, he just speaks a stern word and this profound spiritual infection is gone. The man is set free from demonic oppression. Verse 27 says, The people are astounded by Jesus' authority. Straight from the synagogue, Jesus goes home with Simon and Andrew, two of his followers. They've seen what Jesus is able to do and as soon as they get home, Simon tells Jesus, my mother-in-law, she's very unwell. In the days before Panadol and antibiotics, a fever meant your life was in great peril. Jesus goes to her, simply takes her by the hand. And verse 31 says, the fever left her. I find it really significant that it's put that way. The fever left her. It doesn't say she started feeling better or she regained her health. No, the fever left her. The forces of sickness flee at Jesus' touch. We have some school principals in this church. 
And you might realise that very often a school principal doesn't need to use any words to create change. The principal just enters the classroom and people's behaviour changes. I'm not only talking about the teachers, it affects the students also. (laughs) Disorder flees when the principal enters the room. And sickness flees when Jesus takes this lady by the hand. Now, sometimes you get lucky, and a lucky fluke makes it look like you've got more power than you do. Maybe, like me, you've banged an appliance with your hand, and it suddenly started working. That's the illusion of a great power, isn't it? But it's really just a lucky break. That's not how it was for Jesus. No lucky one-off here. Verse 32 says, That evening people brought to Jesus all kinds of sick and demon-possessed people. The whole town gathered at the door of the house, and he healed people with all kinds of diseases and spiritual afflictions. If there'd been a daily morning update from the Capernaum Health Department the next morning, it would have showed case numbers plummeting overnight. Jesus is earning quite the reputation. But early the next morning, he sneaks off. He goes to a deserted place beyond the edge of town to spend time in prayer. We wonder what he was praying about. Eventually, his disciples track him down and say, what are you doing out here? Everyone's looking for you. Everyone wants you. And here in verse 38, Jesus says something important that we need to understand carefully. He says, let us go somewhere else to the other villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. That is why I have come, he says. If Jesus' mission is to preach, what's with all these healings and exorcisms and miracles? If he's here to preach, are all those things just a distraction? Are they just a hobby that Jesus dabbles in between speaking gigs? Is he just a big softy who can't help himself getting caught up being nice to people when he's meant to be a full-time lecturer? Is that what it is? We get a clue when we read on in verse 39. He knows that he's come to preach, so he travels throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and driving out demons. The exorcisms and the healings don't stop. He keeps on doing it. Now, here's the question. As he travelled around from synagogue to synagogue through Galilee, what was he preaching about? What was his message? Well, we saw the answer way back in verse 15. His message was that the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. His message was that God is just about to take control and make things right. God is about to defeat his enemies and bring justice and peace and wholeness to his people. Jesus wasn't going around giving good advice. He was announcing good news. And when we notice that, we can see that the exorcisms and the healings are not a distraction, not a support act, not just a gimmick to get people's attention. His miracles are part of his preaching. 
they are proclaiming his message with his words. If I came along with my sandwich board declaring the age of prosperity is here, but then I go bankrupt. Or if I come along declaring the age of health is here, but then I have to go on sick leave, I'd rightly be dismissed as a fraud, wouldn't I? But Jesus, Jesus is walking the talk. His words are declaring the kingdom of God has come near and his actions are demonstrating the kingdom of God has come near. He's walking the talk. As we keep reading on, the stakes get higher. Verse 40, a man with leprosy comes to Jesus wanting to be healed. Except actually he doesn't say he wants to be healed. He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. In the ancient Jewish world, a disease like leprosy was not just a nasty medical condition. It was a social death sentence. I think that in our COVID era, we have a new sense of what it means to be unclean. To be compelled to stay away from people because you're infected or you're suspected to be infected. But for a leper in Jesus' day, it wasn't a seven or a 14 day isolation period. It was generally lifelong social exclusion. Not just a metre and a half distance from people, but permanently staying outside the town. This man was dirty in the eyes of everyone. Anything he touched would be infected with dirtiness. Until this moment, when Jesus touches him and says, be clean. Verse 42, immediately the leprosy left him. Instead of Jesus being infected with leprosy, this leprous man is infected with Jesus' cleanness. Jesus' authority drives out the uncleanness. Sickness and dirtiness flee at Jesus' touch. This man is left physically healthy and socially restored. The healed leper is sent off to the priests at the temple. They functioned a bit like public health officers. They'd provide the equivalent of a PCR test to certify that this man is leprosy negative. He can re-enter society. Jesus sends the man to the priests for that purpose. But in verse 44, there's something that seems surprising to us. Jesus tells the ex-leper that apart from the priests, he should not say anything to anyone about what's just happened. It's not the first time that Jesus has wanted to keep the publicity down. This seems like a strange thing for someone whose mission was to preach a message. But Jesus realises that not all publicity is good publicity. He's preaching the kingdom of God in word and deed, but he realises that deeds without words can be a problem. He knows there's a danger of him being known just as a healer, just as someone to provide a solution to problems within this life, a free meal, a health boost. And that was why when demand for his healing services reached fever pitch in Capernaum, he moved on to the next town. 
That's why he doesn't want this healed leper to spread the news at this point. There's a danger that there's so much excitement over the signs that nobody realises the signs are pointing to something. Unfortunately, the ex-leper ignores Jesus' command. Maybe it's understandable after the transformation that's happened in his life. Verse 45 says he went out and began to spread the news freely. And the result was that Jesus, for a time, could not enter any town openly. He had to stay outside in lonely places. Can you see the reversal of roles here? This man who's been healed is now included and Jesus has become the excluded one who has to stay outside town. Jesus has exchanged places with him. An echo of what's going to happen at the climax of Jesus' mission. So Jesus has been proclaiming God's kingdom. He's been walking the talk. People say you should put your money where your mouth is. To mangle the expression a bit, he's been putting his actions where his mouth is. And when we hit chapter 2, this interplay of word and action really comes to the fore. The beginning of Mark 2 is the first Bible story I remember ever hearing. I was in year one at Mossman Infant School. The old man who taught us scripture was always a bit out of breath from climbing the stairs to our first floor classroom. And I remember him trying to draw on the chalkboard in chalk a picture of a man being lowered through a hole in a roof. It's a memorable scene, isn't it? One minute the poor bloke is dangling in midair. The next minute he's picked up his mat and walked out. But once again, this miraculous healing is not just an impressive stunt designed to make scripture lessons more memorable for little kids. Because when the paralysed man first appears in front of him, Jesus doesn't heal him. Jesus first does something far more controversial. He says to the man, chapter 2, verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now this man on the stretcher had obvious physical problems. Why does Jesus choose to discuss his moral status, his spiritual state? From a broader biblical point of view, we would say, doesn't everyone need to have their sins forgiven? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Why didn't Jesus say your sins are forgiven to everyone who came to him for healing? Was this man paralysed by his sense of shame and guilt? Was Jesus responding to the common assumption that serious illness was caused by some particular sin? Or was he just taking the opportunity to cause a stir? There are religious teachers watching on. And they are thinking, this is outrageous. This is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who does this guy think he is? It's the sandwich board stuff again. But it's crossed a line here from laughable to highly offensive. You can't go around saying stuff like that. Jesus knows what they're thinking. Verse 10, he says, I want you to know that the Son of Man does have authority on earth to forgive sins. And that's when he heals the paralyzed man who takes up his mat and walks out in full view of everyone. 
What has been proven to everyone watching this scene? That Jesus has the ability to heal people? That had been demonstrated before. The thing that's been proven as that paralysed man walks out the door is the authority of Jesus. Jesus does all his miraculous healings, all his exorcisms to prove that he does have the status that he claims to have. He does these miracles to demonstrate that his outrageous message about God's kingdom is for real. To show that despite his sandwich board style message, he's not a crackpot after all. He can back it all up. All these things he does are signs that God's kingdom really is at hand. God's kingdom in which there is wholeness, freedom, inclusion and forgiveness. Jesus can back up the claims he's making. If his outrageous claims can be backed up with evidence, then his call to action takes a new seriousness. What was his call to action? It was back in verse 15. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Believe the good news. What kind of good news? Good news about a kingdom. Good news about a change of government. And believing that kind of good news means much more than just accepting certain facts in your brain. There's some news that you can believe without it changing your life. When I hear the news that the Golden State Warriors have reached the NBA Finals, apparently, that's good news for some, it seems, I hear that news and I believe it. But it makes no change to my life. It doesn't demand any change to my life. But when I hear news about a change of government in Australia, believing or not believing that news makes a big difference. Imagine if a senior public servant in Canberra gets up tomorrow and keeps on waiting to receive instructions from Scott Morrison. We've seen in the US in recent years how ugly it can be when people refuse to believe the news about a new government. Believing the good news about the arrival of God's kingdom means declaring your allegiance, entrusting yourself to God's new king, giving him your loyalty. Jesus claims to be that king, the one who rules the world with all the authority of God himself. It's no hollow claim. He's backed it up. He's walked the talk. As he banished demons and sickness and guilt, he demonstrated the authority he wields. As he brings in freedom, wholeness, peace and forgiveness, he illustrated the arrival of the kingdom God had promised. All the evidence of regime change was there to be seen. And so his call to action looms large. I think my favourite moment in our democratic process here in Australia is the concession speech. I think it's such a beautiful moment when the results are in, the point scoring is over, and the leader of whichever party hasn't won, doesn't matter which party it is, the leader of that party stands up and says, our opponents are going to form the next government of this country and we wish them well. I think it's a precious moment in our democracy. 
The challenge for us from the Bible today is, will you give your concession speech to Jesus? Are you willing to say, Jesus, if the demons listen to you and do what you say, if sickness listens to you and does what you say, if leprosy listens to you and does what you say, then I admit that I need to listen to you and do what you say. Will you repent and believe the good news?